Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the week's most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief. I am joined today by John Fiorillo, Executive Editor and John Evans Correspondent. Hello, gentlemen. We have a couple of hot topics to talk about today. Uh, we chose this week to focus on food service. Um, given that, John, you were able to sit in on a really unique uh, webinar um, that was actually put together by Cisco, the world's largest food service um, supplier, and they were able to enlist uh, Bain & Co. to do some really, really kind of stunningly intense uh, research that was, in essence, kind of a postmortem uh, on... Uh, what had happened during the COVID period, and also sort of a look ahead of what it might mean. And a lot of these um, things have big implications for the seafood sector. Um, tell us a bit how it came about and sort of what uh, what they're telling us that will have, um, you know, the, that will impact the seafood sector in the months and years to come. Yeah, they, they, I mean, they it's a, it's it was an update actually on one that they did more or less at the start of the pandemic. Uh, they, there was a clamour for uh, them to do that, and they uh, they they very kindly invited us to uh, to listen in on the um, on the webinar. Uh, Cisco's uh, our listeners will uh, remember is the owner of uh, M and J Seafoods in uh, Great Britain and a whole host of other brands including Vapiano here in Brazil. I could uh, go on and on for days about the brands that they, they own restaurant brands. But, um, you know, one of the one of the most uh, shocking things, I suppose, that came out uh, uh, from the um, early part of the uh, research was that around 14% of US restaurants uh, closed their doors. And if you look at uh, sit-down eateries, that rises to about uh, 20, um, 25%. And as Chris Bearley, who heads the uh, Global Restaurant Practices team, who actually did the presentation, said, 14% uh, is less bad than people were forecasting nine months ago, uh, even though it's a profound shock. Um, so it could have been much worse had... Um, you know, the U.S. not got on and uh, with its vaccine program or, uh, you know, particularly in, in the in the in 2021. Right. And, and um, just some of the other findings uh, from your piece there, too, that were presented in the webinar was, of course, they, they highlighted not just the U.S. You mentioned M&J um, uh, just a second ago the the U.K. food service sector also uh, fell dramatically, of course, just like it did everywhere around the world. But I was really shocked by the actual uh, numbers that the food service sales were down 89% uh, in March. And while, of course, there was a lot of recovery over the course of, of the year, or, you know, I guess compared to 89% down, there was a lot of recovery. Um, even yeah. at the end of December, um, food service sales were down 55%. Uh, now, I'm curious, too, you talked to Adam Swan of M&J, and what was his kind of prognosis on uh, when things might uh, begin to pick back up? Um, you know, the, the restaurants are are, um, are now open in the UK, uh, pubs are open. Uh, well, what, what's happening really in the UK is that pubs are, are with outside space are open. Um, it's around May the 19th that uh, indoor eating can 
resume. So, I mean, there is a sort of popular misconception that everything's changed in Britain now and everything's open again, where it's it's only the those pubs which, when you compare it to the amount of pubs that there are in Britain, and there are a lot, there's not that many with outside space outside. But it is, I think Adam said it was about 20% from their point of view, it was about 20% of volume has come back, which is better than zero, I suppose. Um, uh, yeah, and, and you mentioned those figures of 55% down in uh, December in the UK. I mean, in, in, uh, on the other side of the world, in China and Australia, um, where the worst falls last year were 50%, um, you know, the, the, their food service sales ended last year close to flat. So, you know, it's, um, it's not only patchy within the UK, um, as to the, um, the resumption and, and also Europe, but also, um, you know, there's a big contrast between different areas of the world as well. Here in Brazil, for example, where cases are surging, um, you know, I think it will be quite a long time before food service comes back again, particularly the way that the, you know, the government has been uh, criticised for its mishandling of the uh, c- coronavirus crisis. So what was, you know, the, the, the interesting part, too, is, um, is when you, because you're working on a series here and you've rolled out um, two, two parts, um, the interesting part to me, and it really kind of eye-opening, was um, what's happening with aggregators. And I have to admit, I hadn't even heard that term applied to the food service sector prior to reading your piece. Um, tell us what an aggregator is, because everyone will know the brands, um, but tell us what an aggregator is and does and why um, uh, Chris Beerley of Bain called them frenemies uh, to the <laughs> to the food service <laughs> sector, to restaurants rather. Yeah, I mean, uh, aggregators, of which there are plenty, including Uber Eats and Grubhub, DoorDash, uh, amongst others, uh, they tend to build on the traditional model for food delivery um, and offering uh, access to an array of restaurants through a single online portal. Um, So you log onto your app, whether it be iFood here in Brazil or Happy uh, or Rappi, as it's uh, spelt. you know, they, they, the aggregators, they collect a fixed margin on the order, uh, uh, which is paid by the restaurant, r- restaurant which handles the actual delivery. And, and the, the consumer incurs no extra cost. Um, as you said, um, Chris was keen to stress that uh, while the uh, food service sector restaurants were happy to, uh, under the, the, the onset of... Uh, COVID to, to <clears throat> increase their use of uh, aggregators. Um, there are dangers in that because the uh, aggregators themselves are keen to know who your customers are and ultimately take over your business. I mean, um, I mean, there have been uh, some underhand uh, practices reported. I mean, one we, we, we experienced our, ourselves here in, in Sao Paulo, I shan't name the restaurant and I shan't name the aggregator but um you know there was a, a, a there's a small very small Lebanese restaurant which we like very much and we try and uh, spread the money around to them because you know to try and keep them in business as well yet um when we call when we try to order uh, the the um, application 
the aggregator from the aggregator told it was closed. But when we called the when we called the restaurant, he said no, we're open. So that they they're adopting all kinds of tactics to steer you to the the restaurants that they want you to buy from. Right, because essentially they have access then to uh, customer information that they're not sharing with the restaurant. So um, ultimately, that's now their information. And I thought um, the figures again were just just shocking to me that aggregator credit card sales grew by over 160% um, compared with the 3% average growth for limited service restaurant brands. So it just shows that, um, you know, there, there's already in a way that the ship has already sailed for a lot of these restaurants that are looking to develop their own apps and their own services. I mean, I can see the benefit for a small uh, restaurant um, to be able to outsource kind of delivery and, and outsource all the logistics of that. Um, but at the same time, as you mentioned, um, these businesses are operating on just razor thin margins. And so to be giving away those margins to people like Uber or, um, you know, whoever the, the companies are that you, you know, mentioned, and there's so many more, um, you know, it, it ultimately can can really take its toll, you know, as, as you uh, wrote in the story, Beerly had said, they want to take your customer list and make it their customer list. Yeah. And whereas your uh, goal as a brand is to use them as a, as an, a search engine so you can expand your old customer base. So it, it, as you said, it's, it's a battlefield out there. And uh you know, in some cases, you uh, in other areas of the not so much maybe the restaurants, but in, in uh, when we look at uh, ghost kitchens, which is the next um, in the series, I won't give too much away. But you know, there's there's also a battle going on there, which um, you can read about when we when we put the next chapter out. You know, the I'm sorry, just the irony of all this is that when you know COVID first hit, the restaurants relied on these uh, these services to stay in business right because they couldn't yeah. have people in their shops but the truth of the matter too is that those businesses those delivery businesses uh, uber eats and stuff a lot of them were struggling uh pre-covid so <laughs> it's ironic that one saved the other and the other saved the other <laughs> in, a, in a very odd way but but yeah, as you reported, John, I mean, it, it's quite dangerous to have these aggregators basically taking over your customer list and marketing to them. And I guess if you fall out of favor with them, that probably could hurt you. Plus, they're charging a lot of money to these restaurants to, you know, do the help them with this delivery and customer contact stuff so yeah it, it, it reminds time. me of um it reminds me of um the um the former boss of direct ocean in france when he told me that he this, this france's leading salmon importer when he told me that he doesn't deal with supermarkets exactly for that reason because um uh, you know that they, they can drop you at any moment and get another supplier so you know that that, that that's same sort of uh, cutthroat business practice seems to have crept into the food service sector now. Yeah, and to go back to your part about the restaurants, um, I was in Los Angeles this past weekend uh, visiting my son, and I got a glimpse of what might be coming as things open up in in the U.S. because 
Uh, LA is doing real good with its COVID cases. So things are not completely open, but you know, there's uh, limited capacity in restaurants out, outside dining. Of course, is great because it's LA, but the restaurants were mobbed. I, I mean, you generally had to wait. Um, and in the one we just happened into, coincidentally, it was the first night for live music. So to watch, to watch people who have been cooped up for a long time, you know, not only get out and eat, but have live music at their disposal, it was it was something to see and experience. To be honest with you, I was I was taken aback a little bit. Um, but you know, Los Angeles is looking at opening up fully by mid June. So if it is any example of what's to come, I think restaurants are going to be doing just fine, uh, eventually, not right away, but I think people want to get out and eat and entertain themselves. Well, and we just saw new economic data from the United States, you know, that, that shows that the recovery is for real. Um, we're seeing already uh, booming, you know, a booming economy in the United States. Um, John Fiorello, just just um, kind of sticking on the same topic, what do you think all this means for seafood? When we're talking about, uh, in particular, when we're talking about these aggregators, um, how do you see that impacting seafood? The the delivery trend, the touchless, uh, you know, uh, touchless delivery and things like that, which are becoming more popular. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess it can hurt. I'm not sure about the aggregators and the delivery aspect, but what what is caught my eye is that, okay, what do we know? We know that seafood has done very well at retail during the pandemic. That's great. May, we may have set all-time consumption records. We'll never know because Noah doesn't seem to want to publish those anymore. That's another story. However, Let's assume that continues and then the restaurant business comes back and, you know, the food service business is, is good business for lots of higher end species of seafood, a lot of variety of sea, seafood species. So if that comes back strongly as well and retail holds its own, you know, we may be looking at really, really good times ahead for seafood. Yeah. Well, I find it interesting that it, there, there will need to be some calculations on the part of seafood companies about the kinds of foods that are going to be um, best for delivery, uh, best for these ghost kitchens, um, best for outdoor dining. You know, I don't think we've really explored that too much, but there is certainly going to be changes uh, in, in the species that are served, there's just some species and some product forms that just don't do that well on takeaways, you know, and delivery. So, um, that's going to be interesting to watch as well. If I could just add, uh, add Drew, that, uh, in, in the series that we've done, the food service, uh, series that we've done, we have got uh, three other, uh, chapters to come. The next one is on ghost kitchens. Won't give too much away. Uh, the fourth one is on what to winners have had to do to succeed, uh, in the, you know the COVID environment, and uh, the fourth, the final one is um, the outlook for seafood itself, um, and what recovery might look like. That's going to be really interesting for for the audience to take a look. And it's yeah, uh, what you've done so far already was fascinating. Just to take that uh, to take that look um, back and to look at the the aggregator phenomenon. 
So moving over to uh, the Marine Stewardship Council, um, uh, the world's largest eco-label by uh, a long ways, um, and one of the most important uh, ways to access certain markets, in particular the UK market, um, a, a large question, what happens when you lose your MSC certificate for whatever reason? If there's changes in the water, um, you know, other, other ways that you're, you're not meeting those benchmarks when you are reevaluated um, or reassessed, rather. Um, this happened to the Norwegian inshore cod and haddock sector, and inshore is within 12 miles. Um, it had piggybacked onto the certification for the larger um, full cod and haddock fishery in, in Norway, um, which is a huge, huge fishery. Um, it is one of the uh, most important uh, providers of whitefish uh, to Europe and the world, and certainly to the UK, both for fresh and frozen. Now, the loss of the certificate, which uh, for Haddock happened on Monday, uh, COD will happen in the very near future. There's some administrative issues that are happening there that'll um, delay it somewhat, but it'll still lose it. Um, it's around 300,000 metric tons of fish that have lost uh, its MSC certificate. Um, that is a lot of whitefish. It's going to have a huge impact on, uh, certainly on, on Europe, um, and on the, on the fresh market, uh, and in particular in the UK. So we're talking about based on current quotas, um, around 113,000 metric tons of, of, uh, of, um, haddock and, uh, and, uh, or I apologize. So around 200, 264,000 metric tons of cod and 28,000 metric tons of haddock that are all going to be losing their MSC stamp. Now, this is reminiscent to me of um, when this has happened in the past. Um, perhaps it is uh, illustrative of the MSC's independence that, um, that the fishery is losing its certificate, um, because it's certainly there's been um, criticism leveled that it's um, the MSC will will um, do what it needs to do to keep its uh, companies uh, and and um, client groups uh, satisfied. But this at least is one example of how they won't. Um, it's really frustrating to the Norwegian industry um, and uh, Norwegian suppliers, and it's um, it's highly complex. Norway. Uh, has the largest coastline of any country by the time you look at all those little fjords and everything and go all up inside those. Um, and that's a lot of where the coastal cod is spawning is in these fjords and up and down, you know, north of the 62 degree um, line there. Um, and, and it's just very difficult to get good science on it. But because of recent, um, not recent rather, but because of pre-existing assessments of those fisheries, um, they currently don't meet those standards. Now, they haven't met it for uh, quite some time. Uh, when they jumped on to the offshore cod and haddock fishery certificate, um, they were told, okay, great, uh, you can do this. Here's the things that you need to improve. And it was bycatch and it was um, spawning biomass and things like that. Now, the International Council uh, for the... Uh, Oh, it's just completely uh, slipping my mind. ICES. What does ICES stand for? It'll come to me in a second. International Council for the Exploration of the Sea. There we go. Um, their analysis uh, recently found that 
things might not be as uh, dire as um, as it, it once seemed because of new ways of analyzing the stock. I mean, in short, it's highly, highly complicated. Um, but but the, the thing about it is, and I think this raises a, an interesting issue about the MSC, is it's really the small-scale fishermen that are going to suffer. Um, the people that are harvesting inshore, these are small vessels. These are like you know, 15, 12, 15 meter vessels, um, individually owned, uh, largely, uh, typically, um, people that are living in remote coastal communities in Northern Norway, and it's going to hit people very, very hard. And it's going to hit these communities very, very hard. Now that's sad. The MSC may not be able to do anything about it. I don't think they will. And they've said that they can't do anything about it, but there's a real irony here, uh, in the, when you adopt the MSC sustainable stamp, it can give you this leg up in market access. And that's one of the things that MSC really touts when it's recruiting fisheries to, to join the program. But then when you lose that, uh, after you've developed these client relationships, these customer relationships based on having that MSC stamp, um, you lose market access. So John, this reminds me of the Alaska salmon, um, uh, imbroglio from several years ago, um, where also they had some complexities about uh, mixing of stocks and about hatcheries and all kinds of things. But I mean, th this is an issue, isn't it, for the MSC and about these, uh, especially on the small scale fisheries? Um, is there anything to be done? And what what should we take away from these losses? Well, I, I'm not sure you and I totally agree on this one, because I think... Um this is the way the MSC certification is exactly designed to function. Um, if you receive the certification, you are audited uh, every five years, I believe it is, um, or you have to renew every five years, audited every year. And if you don't meet the qualifications, you lose the stamp. Uh, now, you pointed out that this is going to affect, uh, you know, small scale fisheries, individual fishermen in coastal areas where there's little else to earn a living from. And I totally agree. That's unfortunate. But if the fish go away, they're going to lose these jobs anyway. So, you know, I, I honestly think this is exactly the way it's supposed to work. And, it's ironic to me that way back in time when the MSC came onto the seafood stage, I believe Norway, um, you know, had nothing really good to say about the group and was going to go it alone. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure my recollection is correct. Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Drew. But um, so ultimately, what does this tell me? Ultimately, this tells me that that eco label means a lot to seafood companies, whether they be individual fishermen or, you know, larger entities such as processors or wholesalers. So, um, yeah, I, it feels like it's working the way it's supposed to, to me. Okay. So, you know, I, I can get on board with, uh, with the, uh, either the certification, either you meeting the standards or not meeting the standards. And I agree. It does show that the MSC is independent. Uh, and then it really is the certification bodies and the, the scientists that do the certification that are the ones that are, are going to be making the ultimate decision based on the available science. Now, on the one hand, available science is, uh, 
appears to be quite a mess in Norway. I'm not going to dive into it because I don't know enough about it and I will just confuse the listeners and you can read about it on our uh, on our site because there's been good reporting done on it by uh, Dominic Welling who's been tracking this. Um, but there's that aspect about the the debate over which science is correct science. But more to the point, I think, with this is about the MSC's market power. And it is pretty much, I think we can say, the only game in town. I mean, when it comes to third-party certification, there isn't anybody else out there doing it. And while maybe that wasn't that big of a deal when MSC was growing, um, you know, I, I, and there was a lot of people, as you said, and, and you're absolutely right, Norway was one of the most vocal against it. Norway and Iceland uh, were the most vocal, and Alaska. Um, but they're really only, you know, they're really the only legitimate game in town that most people, most retailers recognize um, and most food service uh, companies recognize. But, you know, to me, I guess the, the risk here for fisheries entering the MSC program is, um, I don't want to say it's a devil's bargain, but it's a risk. Because if you are entering the MSC certification, you are a bit at the mercy of those standards until the end of time or, you know, until the foreseeable future. So that means, you know, so Alaska found itself in this bind, right? When there was discussions about whether or not the hatchery supplementation in Southeast Alaska would impact the, uh, the certification. Um, and that's when the Alaskans, you know, said, well, fine, we're pulling out of the MSC program that did not work out well for them. But again, it shows that, and they eventually came back into the program. But again, it it does show this market power of the MSC is significant, and and I do have questions about whether retailers themselves have become too reliant on the MSC as the only way to gauge sustainability. Because while I think the MSC standard is rigorous, and there's no question, uh, the MSC has done a great job uh, over the years in kind of building this incredible critical mass. I also question when you get to the stage and there really is only kind of one eco label, what's the risk of that? And is it too easy for retailers to say, it's not MSC, I don't want to use it. And is that sort of is that shirking some responsibility for engaging with these fisheries? Well, I mean, from the beginning, the retailers have used the MSC and BAP and all the other ones out there as cover to protect insurance policy is what we used to refer to it as because they got pushed from their corporate bosses. They got pushed to um, demonstrate sustainability, whether it be for, you know, raisins or seafood or whatever it is. So in the seafood world, this was readily available to them. It's rigorous. It's legit. Uh, so they went with it. So I can't really feel bad for the retailers in this scenario whatsoever because it has served them well for a long time. Now, as as far as the MSC certification itself, you know, let's keep in mind that this is based on the best available science, right? And the best available science right now on those fisheries is the icy science that you referenced, at least the older icy science. And that says things are not, things are not good right now. 
I'm assuming the MSC will have to now uh, take a look at this new science and see if it alters uh, alters their opinion at all, and maybe the the certification is reinstated. I'm not sure. That's you know that's to come, obviously. But yeah, I I, I mean. <sighs> I think if you sign up with them, you know what you signed up for. And unfortunately, as you pointed out, they are they have a monopoly. Let's just call it what it is. They have a monopoly on wild uh, wild fish uh, sustainability certification. And you know, that was always their goal, I'm sure, and it's come to pass. But I don't think it's a terrible thing when a fishery loses its certification if the science is clearly telling us that to continue down the path we're continuing there won't be a fishery five ten seven whatever how many years from now so yeah that's that's where i sit well i think it's going to be really interesting to see how retailers react and whether or not they sort of embrace or whether or not they kind of um, determined that they um, need to walk away from uh, from some of these fisheries. Um, you know, I, I do think you're seeing fisheries improvement programs and things like that that can be one way for retailers and processors to engage with fisheries to try to bring them um, up to where they need to go, uh, need to be. And sometimes there's fisheries that for, for whatever reason can't meet those MSC standards. And it's not always because they aren't sustainable. It can be a range of things. It can be about not having the, not having a client, uh, that that's able to do all the paperwork and traceability involved. It can be a, a whole host of reasons. So I think it is important though, you know, that we, we don't confuse sustainability with Marine Stewardship Council certification. Those two are not equivalent. Uh, Marine Stewardship Council is one way to deem that a fishery is sustainable. It is not the it is not the full on arbiter of whether or not a fishery is sustainable. Um, now, are there other third third party certifications that are doing as good a job? Uh, not really. And the the RFM standard for 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 better or for worse. I think that the way that the responsible fisheries management certification was rolled out initially, um, it it was rolled out a little haphazardly, and it gave the impression, I think, to the marketplace, not consumers, but to to retailers and and um, some processors, that it was essentially a fishery certifying itself. So you know, Drew certifying that the the Drew fishery is sustainable. Um, I don't think that's the case, and they have moved to uh, pushing things forward, uh, pushing things off to to clients that are not involved in the fishery. Um, so you have that in Iceland, you have it in Alaska, and they're developing it for other areas as well. Um, and Norway is pursuing it as well. But ultimately, that is not the MSC. And um, while uh, there's plenty of retailers in countries around the world that don't care about the MSC. A lot of them do, uh, certainly in Europe. Um, a lot, I should say a lot of these larger retailers care a lot. And in the UK, they really care about it. Well, and that's the bind, right? I mean, if you're a seafood company or, or if you're a client of the MSC and you're like, oh, we've had it. I, I can't take these guys anymore. You know, it's too much, whatever, whatever. You can't really quit it because <laughs> if you quit it, 
the perception will ultimately be that, well, you're not there anymore. You left. Mm, that must mean your your fishery isn't as sustainable as it was. I mean, that that could be one way to look at it, right? So, yeah, there there is a there is a bind there. I I, I have to say, it's the Hotel California of eco labels. That's what it is. <laughs> okay, you gonna sing? No, I'm not. I'm going to end it before we have to sing. So thank you, uh, John and John. Um, You can read more about the MSC fallout uh, on our pages because we're still covering that. Um, And uh, we've got another story rolling out uh, tomorrow or a Monday on it. Because again, it's going to have some really, really big implications on the whitefish trade in uh, in Europe um, in particular uh, for for the, the fresh market. So Let's track that. Let's see how it goes and see how the retailers uh, react and what the uh, what the fishermen and, and suppliers need to do to to address it. So and like John uh, Evans said, we have the food service uh, focus continuing to roll out uh, over the course of the next week or so. And uh, you get more insights there. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us. And we'll look forward to chatting more about the latest in seafood news next week.